Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Dom Taylor from Uber ANZ, the GM, the big dude. Welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. I have to tell you, by the way, I did a little bit of homework before you came on and um, I have had a few Uber trips uh, about a week or so ago and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Um, but first I want to talk about you. Um, <laughs> how long have you been at Uber? This year is my ninth year at Uber. Uh, I joined Uber in 2014 just as we were launching UberX. Uh, so you remember we had a couple of years of Uber Black, then Uber Taxi, then UberX. Yep. Uh, and UberX was obviously the moment where Uber took off, where it was our first great innovation, I think. And uh, I was in operations at that time, a small team of seven people sitting over at Piermont. Uh, and then over the last nine years, I've done a few roles in operations, strategy, and then have been GM uh, since 2019. I took over the GM in a uh, role in October 2019, had a great plan for 2020, and uh, went to have my second daughter in March uh, and came back and the business had shrunk 85% in two weeks. Wow. Uh, so it has been a, a fun three years of, of rebuild, uh, but uh, also of growth and uh, an incredible experience. If you go back to 2014 or 2015, what sort of numbers were in the shop in those days when you say you had a team of nine, but how many people would you be talking about at Uber generally? Uh, seven of us sitting oh, here no, in, in, sitting. In, in Australia um, every morning. Uh, we would look at ways that we could sign up more drivers. Every afternoon we'd go out to the onboarding centre and sign them up. At night we didn't have a support centre. We would respond to tickets on Zendesk. Um, it was a, a very small team. Uh, fast forward to today, uh, 8 million Aussies used Uber last year, one of the biggest consumer brands here in, in Australia. Uh, we've got about a team of 500 across rides and eats uh, here in Australia. Uh, based largely in Sydney and Melbourne and some remote workers. Uh, but it's certainly it's come a long way in those 10 years. I remember in 2015, then you were there, when we did the Uber pitch, which I, I have to be honest with you, I think is one of the most fun things I've ever done. But one of the smartest marketing ideas, and I don't know where it came from, but one of the smartest marketing ideas launching a business that I'd ever seen, like getting people to pitch to me and I, I chose five other people, which is mates of mine, um, you know, Roxy Jusanko and others, to pitch to us for seven minutes while we filmed it in the back of a Uber, um, pitch their idea, their new business idea or the current business idea um, and uh, look for seven minutes worth of feedback about their pitch or about their idea. 
And um, I remember launching it um, at an event. So I was a speaker um, at an event called uh, Sydney Startup. And it was at the town hall. It had been four or 500 people there. And I got up on the stage, made my speech, did my talk for whatever it is, 45 minutes. And then I then announced that if you all got a good idea and you want to pitch it to me and the other people that I just mentioned, uh, that I mentioned there, I said who the other people were. I said, go to the Uber app. Um, hit the button which says Uber Pitch because you guys created a special page called Uber Pitch. Um, tell the uh, say where you are, which part of Sydney you are, which corner of it, etc. And uh, a car will come and pick you up, and I'll be in the back of the car, or one of the other five will be in the back of the car. You do your pitch. We had five thousand applications, or five thousand yeah applications, I guess, within an hour or so. It was mental. Yeah, and we yeah. Got, we got through one, and we didn't get through many, maybe forty or fifty. Over a period of the day, by the end of the day, we were exhausted. It was amazing how small businesses love the idea of being able to get in the back of Uber and pitch an idea. Yeah, yeah. And we were doing it. It was a, it was a great day. I remember it well. Um, and it was part of a lot of fun things we did across 2014, 15, 16. Um, I'm sure I remember delivering kittens to offices, puppies, ice cream, uh, and an Uber pitch, of of course. I, th- I think that did was part of the genesis of what I think was the second great innovation moment for Uber in Australia. And that was people like to look at their phone and have things brought to them. Uh, And that, of course, led to Uber Eats in 2016. Uh, Uber Eats started as a takeaway food on uh, for dinner. And now we've added uh, retail, Woolworths, uh, butchers, seafood, alcohol. Uh, It's really moved on to deliver me anything. Um, From that insight of People love looking at their phone and have something come t- come towards them. Just a, a side story on 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 Roxy, uh, where we first had our driver onboarding centre in Beaconsfield here in Sydney, uh, shared an office space with Roxy's uh, agency at the time. Uh, and as you can imagine, drivers were turning up every other minute to buzz on the door to sign up, and the buzzer was incredibly loud. So uh, she di- she didn't love that the the shared co working space with her. Uh, and we moved on to a new new, new job that uh, that that uh, the shrill of the uh, onboarding centre alarm every time uh, a new driver turned up will, will always rest in my ears and and certainly Roxy's. And to some extent, um, you sort of co-created at least with others in the most fundamental way what has been referred to as the gig economy. The interesting point here is that it's actually a, a word that started in 1910 with jazz musicians. You know, it was something that has operated for almost 100 years, whether it be musicians, artists, um, people in the creative industry, taxi drivers, where they're coming, working on a no-holds uh, basis, completing a job that they freely accept and and uh, and moving on to their next thing at their choice. Um, of course, as you say, the... Uh, proliferation of platform and technology has has greatly uh, increased uh, the size of the gig economy as a new form of work, uh, which I think is the third great innovation here um, in Australia. Just to, to give you a sense of size there, Mark, um, 2022, we paid $3.8 billion into drivers and delivery partners' bank accounts here in Australia. Wow. Um, each month, 150000 drivers and delivery partners make money from Uber. So that is now one of, if not the largest workforce here in Australia. Um, And it was interesting, just two weeks ago, the Productivity Commission released a report. And what it actually identified, which is true, is 
we've fallen in love with this consumer brand and having been moving around our cities and having things delivered to us. But actually the key enabler of it has been this incredibly flexible new source of labor that allows us to match supply and demand depending on where demand is at any point in the week. And so what we've been able to do with the gig economy is create a product that men and women tell us they love in this new type of work, uh, which we'll go into. Um, But it has been the enabler that has made this consumer product in our Uber Rides and Uber Eats business, which has been a key growth driver of the economy over the last few years. It would be fair to say that Uber, the business, effectively just, not just, but in a very in a very complex way <laughs> enabling platform a marketplace where you match people who want a gig and you match people who want a ride or yeah. they want something delivered you know you're providing a marketplace for somebody who the people I met one of the young ladies I met she's a social media person mm-hmm. and she uses the platform to make a few extra dollars in the hours that she wants like total flexibility and it sort of backfills her income that she uses while she's building another business. Yeah. Is that Uber's role really as an enabler? What you've just said there is we are a marketplace that connects riders and drivers on the ride side of the business and on the eat side of the business, it's actually a three-sided marketplace between restaurants, uh, consumers and uh, couriers. Yeah. Um, and effectively what our technology layer has been able to do and the app but then the back-end technology innovation that has come with that is we have been able to create true innovation and efficiency by using technology to connect people quicker and to aggregate the movements of people in a way that drivers are making more money than what was happening in the traditional industries, uh, riders are able to pay less money, uh, and restaurants are able to create incremental uh, business uh, for them. Uh, just on your point in terms of flexibility, I think it's a it's a big one. Um, and, you know, I sit down with drivers and delivery partners often. I sat down with our advisory forum two months ago and I said, reforms are coming. Um, tell me, what do you want out of this? And the first response is unequivocal every single time. It is, Dom, do not lose the flexibility. Do not lose the flexibility that we love. And I think it's a maybe a little bit of an overused word. And so I just pushed. I said, let's let's stop for 10 minutes, go around the room and, and just hear what flexibility means for each of these people. And the stories that came out, we had, you know, mums that were doing this between their kids' soccer practice. We had single dads that do Uber on their week that they don't have their kids' custody so that they can be with their kids full-time when they do have them. We have retirees that aren't ready to stop talking to people and want to keep starting to make money. People transitioning uh, from accounting to nursing that are doing Uber in their Friday, Saturday nights to make some dollars. It is truly unique, this flexibility. As um, we'll get on to, the the government's looking to reform the gig economy, um, the Albanese government, and for the absolute avoidance of doubt, we want reforms. We think they're a good idea, but we've got to get them right. And so the way we get them right is we retain the flexibility that drivers tell us they love, whilst then overlaying protections and benefits that can improve the total quality of this gig work in Australia. You may know that I run a business where we lend money to people buy houses. Yep. And, of course, interest rates have gone up quite high and in the last period. And we often go and do surveys to find out what do you do 
when your mortgage rate's gone up and the cost of living's gone up, but your income's sort of around about the same. What do you do? Do you yep. sell your house or what do you do? And quite a few of the people we talk to say they're doing exactly what you guys are providing. Yep. They're becoming Uber driver partners. They're becoming uh, delivery partners. They're gigs. Yeah, three quarters of the people that we survey tell us that they've got a second job on top of Uber. Uh, 40% of people use Uber less than 10 hours a week. So it is seriously this new type of work that is supplementary to other activities that are going on in their life. Only 7% of people used it like an employment job in 2022. So 48 weeks doing 38 hours a week. Right, exactly, full time. And so the risk here is that we solve for that 7% with the reforms that come out here Um, and we push or shoehorn um, this independent contractor model of gig economy work into traditional forms of employment. And so you think about the Uber driver today that comes online when they want, switches on off when they want, they accept what trips they want, they wear what they want, they're working on three different apps at any point in time, they're their own boss. And compare that to someone working at Baker's Delight that's turning up at a time that they've agreed with their employer, they're finishing at a time, they're working on one job in a uniform at that point in time, earning a set hourly wage. With a set of directions as to how to bake the bread. They're very different. Um, And so if we solve for the gig economy with traditional employment uh, structures, we're in trouble here. And I think an important point here, Mark, is that this isn't the first time we've done this at Uber. We've done this all around the world multiple times. We're having these conversations with many governments today in other countries. And so we know about how we can thread that needle between contract and employment in a way that has good outcomes. We also know what happens when you get this wrong. So Geneva, a couple of years ago, the Uber Eats couriers got deemed as employee-like, resulted in shifts. And the, what does that mean? A shift work that they had to come on at a time and finish at a certain time. So the court said that Uber Eats couriers in Geneva shifted to become employers. Right. Right. Over the next two months, 70% of them lost their job because it didn't work. The price of Uber Eats in Geneva went up markedly and the quality of the service, aka the time that it took to deliver the product, Increased meaningfully. So flexibility is not just a byproduct of the gig economy. No. Flexibility is the driver of the gig economy. Yeah. So you can't throw the, the, the baby out with the bathwater because you will end up with nothing. So you've got to be really, really careful here. 100%. So, so where's the push coming from to regulate? Let me be clear. We think reforms are a good idea. we just got to get them right. Yeah. And so we've got to preserve that flexibility but then – The important structure to understand is that over 100 years of industrial relations in Australia, a lot's been done, but ultimately there's two key forms of work. There's traditional employment with all the benefits that we know. Super, annual leave, sick leave, blah, blah, blah. And then there's contracting with nothing. Mm. And actually benefits are a key test of whether someone is a contractor or an employee. Mm. And so you're precluded from providing benefits or safety nets and protections to people that are contractors. This dichotomy between the two doesn't need to occur. We think there's actually a third way that we should be building and codifying in these reforms whereby people remain contractors with all the benefits of flexibility, but then we can overlay on top of that 
protections and safety nets. And so what happens at that point, everyone in the gig economy has to meet a certain level of protections that are, you know, completely aligned with Aussie values. You need to make sure that you, regardless of what platform you're accepting a trip on, they've got the right level of insurance. Uh, that you have the right earning standards, uh, that you have the right of access to the platform. And so what we think you need to do is preserve the flexibility, but then create the the laws that allow these platforms like Uber, um, but many other platforms across the health sector, uh, the art sector, the creative sector, uh, that would allow us then to be building on these safety nets so that people have that peace of mind when they're completing a job. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Dom, you know a little bit about what I do and I'm, I'm so passionate about small business owners, self-employed people. It's my audience. It's who I talk to. It's who I believe in. It's who I want to see survive. You know, there's, they provide 70% everything that happens in this country. They're a big contributor to gross domestic product in Australia. Gig people are fit firmly in that category, but there's a lot, they're a big, bigger category, but the gig is a big participant in that. How do you and or how does Uber look at any one of these driver partners, delivery partners? Do you look at them as self-employed people, as a small business owners? Because they sort of essentially are. I totally agree. Uh, and the the spirit of entrepreneurship that exists in the Uber drivers of Australia, when you get into those cars, uh, you can just feel. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I had coffee yesterday with a... A bloke called Mark. I, I signed Mark up in 2014 and he has driven for Uber since. He lives in Sydney, uh, inner city Sydney for most of the time and then up in Queensland a couple of weeks each uh, month where he works at a motorbike shop. And I said to him, I'm, I'm talking to Mark Burris tomorrow, What, what what's your message? <laughs> and he said, the reason why we can't employ the 150,000 people is because this is the biggest group of small business owners that are working every day to do two simple things, and that's to maximize their revenue and minimize their costs. 
And in terms of maximizing their revenue, they know the right place to come online. They know which events are going to surge versus which are not going to surge. Uh, they know which hours of the morning uh, – the, the eastern suburbs, people start to, to order their Ubers to, to come into town. They know exactly how to maximize their revenue and we need to help them give them that information as well. On the minimizing costs, um, we, we help out with, with deals with such as BP to get them access to cheaper fuel and whatnot, but they know the right day to, to, to fuel up their car. And which uh, service station? Exactly. And the best car wash in Sydney or whatever city they're in. Uh, and so ultimately what these men and women are doing is they are trying to maximise their take-home for whether it be holidays or whether it be the increased interest rates that they're having to pay. Um, and often, um, just to overlay another element of the entrepreneurship that we see in these men and women, they are running their own businesses at the same time. And so many uh, startup founders that I have talked to have done Uber in their early years to bootstrap so that they don't need to raise capital to pay their own wage. Um, we have a program called Business Booster where people are able to pitch us ideas and we will then enter them into a, a coaching and development system over 12 months to help them foster and, and ultimately to invest in small businesses in Australia. Their other business. Yeah. 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 So you're actually out there encouraging them to run other businesses and to own other businesses or to start up other businesses. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you know, that's that's the beauty of what people have. They are refining their pitch with every customer that pops into 100%. their car. Every time I get one, they pitch into me. <laughs> they are handing out the uh the business cards. They uh, have the the exec summary of the business on the back of the headset so people can read all about it. Um it's uh it's an incredible group of of men and women that have come together on this Uber platform in Australia. All the time when I get recognized in the back of an Uber that the driver is talk, talking to me about how do I find investors because they all need capital, especially at the moment, and or they all need to refine their pitch because ultimately they're going to go and try and get some capital or they're just trying to see if I'm impressed yeah. with their idea. Yeah. They want to throw their idea past me. So just about it, I would say just 90-odd of the people that I get into, into the car with are small business owners or self-employed people in some other business as well, not yeah. just in the gig economy, but yep. in some of the business. Yep. We need to see more of that in Australia. We need that to be encouraged. We need governments to get behind that sort of stuff. For me, as being, you know, especially in this job with the mentor, it would kill me if we see that die off. Yeah, and, the, and and all the tricks that they've discovered on Uber and how to uh, to work the app to to get the best, longest quality trips. Uh, and I think the other group that I'll just build on your point there, Mark, is people that are out of a job at the moment and are looking for a job. Yeah. And traditionally, they were going to an interview, coming home, and you know, sitting at home waiting for that response to to the job interview. And I've, I've met with hundreds of men and women that have lost their job um, and are using Uber in the interim between the next job. And you can imagine from a psychological perspective to be earning money, but also to be out in public chatting to people, hearing about new job offers that might be coming up. It's hugely powerful. And it's exactly what we saw in the pandemic as hospitality workers lost their jobs in the early months of, of 2020. We saw a rise in the number of people that were coming to Uber as a way of finding new forms of work to, to cover their, their life expenses. Uh, likewise, 
as you see, as we roll off these low fixed cost mortgages in the next four months, people's household P&Ls will be having a major shock and they will be looking for new areas to be able to bring in new forms of income. And that's where we want to be there. It's, there's no interviews. Um, there's there's no selection criteria. There is a basic set of requirements that involve a police background check, state accreditation and a driving history. And if you tick that- And a license. You're driving the next day and a license and a license history. Sense of purpose too, by the way. That, that's really important. Mm. You know, mental health is a big issue. And when, you know, if our unemployment, we're like in Australia, the unemployment was only 3.5%, but if unemployment number goes to 4.5%, as a result of these interest rate rises, which is going to happen, by the way, because that's what interest rate rises are designed to do, because yep. the more people get put out of employment, full-time employment, um, the less people spend. End of story. That's how it works. And it's going to happen, believe me. Um, you don't want to have mental, mental health problems. You don't want to have someone have a sitting home thing, God, I'm trying to find a job, every job I apply for, no one wants to employ anyone because times are tough. Um, I sit in my house and just sit there waiting for the phone to ring or in my, and I've got my family coming home, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm a failure. You're right. Getting out there and sitting in a car, you're sort of to some extent forced to talk yeah. to the person who's in there, particularly if they want to talk to you. Yeah. And I'm the sort of dude, I always want to find, wherever I, I land somewhere, I want to find out what's going on. And how, how's Melbourne going at the moment? You're getting plenty of jobs. You know, can you pick people up? Where are people going to? Are they off to the casino? Where are they going to? You know, et cetera. I like to know how busy people are. And for me, it's like a little survey I do everywhere I go. It doesn't matter if I'm in Orange or if I'm in um, Mildura or Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Sydney, um, I'm always asking the same question. So I can do my research. So I engage with the person who's sitting in the front of the car and they in turn have to then engage back with me. Mm. So that that sense of um, self-esteem, people interested to talk to me, I'm out and about as well as earn a quid. Mm. Uh, like mm. that, and as you say, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm undermining it, but pretty much anybody can do it. Mm. It doesn't yeah. matter. Access is one of the key things that I think is truly unique about being uh, an Uber driver, as is the core nature of of that flexor flexibility that un, that underpins this job. So, okay, let's look at the downsides. If something gets introduced unwittingly by governments, what do you see as the downside. So if, if we take a step back, so the Albanese government ran with the promise of reforming the gig economy um, and they've obviously done their first round of industrial relations that didn't involve the gig economy. We're kicking off uh, a consultation now um, and that's with the aim of having new reforms in place uh, by the end of the year. Because you're not against reforms. No, we, we want reforms and we want to be part of the consultation process. Yep. The mistake the government can make here is to not listen to the people that these reforms are out to impact uh, and to turn this into an academic exercise um, rather than speak to the men and women that you've been travelling with over the last week in hearing what they love about it because you want to retain that but you want to solve where there are opportunities for improving this quality of work. And so that's the, we, we, we've recently launched a marketing campaign uh, in Canberra around Australia to just tell policymakers, listen to the people that are impacted by this, these changes. Um, as we get closer to understanding what those changes are like, the key here is that we are creating a bespoke set of reforms which capture a modern way of work that hasn't been around before. 
And the mistake that the government can make here is shoehorning this into existing employee-like reforms because at that stage, that shifts to uh, fixed uh, shift work. It It shifts to fixed hourly earnings. That's not the hallmarks of what people tell us they like. They want to have flexibility to come online, offline when they want. Uh, They want to be paid more for periods where there is higher demand um, and and they want to ultimately be their own boss. Uh, And uh, as we talked about with Geneva, we know that it can can go wrong if if you stuff that up. And so that's why we are very much of the view that this is a once in a generation uh, moment to, to really modernize the Australian industrial relations system for a new type of work that hasn't existed. Um, and, and, and we're excited to, to work with Minister Burke uh, and, and his counterparts in Canberra uh, in aligning on a set of reforms that uh, result in, in, in maintaining the things that people love but also improving the quality of, of, of giga work here in Australia. So you're really talking about the opportunity to build a new regime a new industrial regime in relation to what is probably a new form of work. As you were saying earlier, you said we don't want to shoehorn. You don't want to, yeah, but I think what you mean by that is that you don't want to use old systems, you know, old award systems or old industrial relations systems that don't really have that much application for the current style of work that these people want to engage in. That's 100% right. And and we agree that there are these two forms of work, as I said, employment and contractors. We think this is the moment to create a third type. Like a hybrid. Yeah, a hybrid where you can do both. The, the, the dichotomy of both of these doesn't serve us in the uh, gig economy. We want the flexibility of on, of in contracting, but we want the protections and safety nets of employment. Why not bring those so it together? It doesn't have to be one or the others you're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it's not a binary decision. It doesn't need to be. You know, it doesn't um, have to be binary. We can we can create something new. Yeah. And but what's an interesting thing, thing about that is we live in an age where we are creating new stuff all the time. Either being an employee or a contractor, there has to be something in between, mm-hmm. which is the best of all both, mm. of all of those without having the negative effects of any one of those to keep something alive that Australians love. Yep. Is there any models overseas that have been done this? Or was, would, yeah, would this no, be the there first is. One? There are, as I said, we have working models in the US, in Canada, in Latin America, uh, in India. Uh, there are learnings from as well. So we have been able to do it. Um, I think the other point is that we want to make sure that we're future-proofing this in a way that encourages innovation. Yeah. Can you imagine if the outcome of this is a 600-page document <laughs> for the rideshare drivers of Australia and the uh, the online food delivery couriers of Australia that both get updated every 12 months? What about the six industries we haven't thought of that are going to be added on in the next 10 years? Then we're going to have to go back and do that process over and over. Let's solve for this across the gig economy um, for platform workers. Let's do it in a simple way that is fit for purpose, uh, that gets to market quickly. uh, And let's truly uh, take on this spirit of this is a new type of work. And as such, we need to have a new set of uh, industrial relations uh, codified to that captures what this uh, part of the economy is about. Should it be like a formal inquiry? I mean, like a, like a proper formal inquiry, like a, maybe run by an independent task force or something like that, like calling for submissions and 
you know, without any decisions being made until recommendations are made? I mean, at the moment we uh, submissions are being made um, and we're part of that process and expect to be part of that process. More submissions will be made and I expect there's a high likelihood there could be uh, inquiries involved later in the year before the uh, the, the minister uh, and his staff uh, are able to uh, propose the regulations that will then need to be passed through both sets of uh uh, both houses, uh, both parliament. Yeah. yeah, and they're going to have to get approval by everybody. But it isn't. This is not a simple thing. This is done properly. It needs to be stepped out because mm-hmm. we don't want, as you said earlier, we you want to make make sure it's future proofed. But but on top of that, you don't want the the outside chance that this gets turned into a, a shit show, and then every the whole thing just falls apart. Yeah, and, and for the absolute avoidance of doubt, we've got no reason to believe that it will at the moment. We're encouraged with what we're hearing from Canberra and all the conversations we're part of um, and, and really we're, we're, we're excited for the next six months. We think it's a key moment. Um, if you look at the way that industries evolve over um, hundreds of years, um, as you know, there are key moments where uh, reforms are often one of the catalysts here, where there's a moment that creation, creativity spurs innovation um, and that will re- result in big outcomes for the nature of these industries. We think this is a moment for the gig economy. We just got to get it right. Uh, and so that's why we um, most importantly uh, uh, want to bring the voices of the 150,000 drivers and delivery partners to Canberra um, so that that is codified in the legislation that's proposed later in the year. And and how does your organisation um, do your research? I mean, do you hold regular meetings with your drivers or what's the deal? How's it operating? You know? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the nice thing is about something like Uber, we have a, a lot of data and so we know um, – you know, what, how many people have come online in a given week, how much they've earned, et cetera. And so we're able to track our internal data. Uh, but as you know, the quant data only tells half the story, maybe even less. And so we make a point of sitting down. I've got an advisory forum. I sit down with four times a year uh, across Australia, small towns, big towns, and I sit there and I listen and they talk at me and tell me ideas. Uh, and then I personally make a point of, of, of sitting down and talking with drivers, not only in cars, but people that I've met over the years that I think can uh, give me uh, good inputs. And so Mark, yesterday I had Brecky with him uh, and I came out with with six dot points for my team to solve that I've sent the email off that they're working on. You never get the sort of feedback from how the experience is on the platform until you talk to a driver. And so and that's why it's so important we've got that face of... And as you said earlier, the experience will evolve too. I mean, it's evolved from where it first started in 2014, like it's evolved a lot. Yeah. Um, and it'll continue to evolve as do consumers' demands in terms of and, and therefore your response and also the, you know, the driver partner's response, the delivery partner's response to what a consumer wants. What are maybe two or three of the key qualitative factors that you guys have learned from your partners? To be clear, the labour market has never been tighter and more competitive. And so if you're not offering a value proposition that doesn't stack up, uh, the men and women that make money on Uber will leave. They'll walk. Yeah, they will walk. Yeah. That is the beauty of the contracting yeah. uh, that they they owe nothing to give us a heads up or anything. So we need to be making sure that we have a good uh, proposition. Good. The good news is Uber's the sort of business that 
wants to keep improving, that we don't sit on our laurels. So let me give you a couple of examples. Driver payments, um, something that um, ha- is, is a core underpinning. People need to get paid for the work that they do. Uh, when I started, I, I ran the payments process manually every, uh, every Monday morning and we spat it out. Today, after you complete a trip, you can click a button and that amount will be in your account instantaneously or daily or weekly. You tell us what- Per trip. Ha- per trip if you want. Per transaction. Yeah. yeah. If you want. So each driver can be choosing how they want to um, get paid. Uh, that was a, a big one, payments. If you don't pay people, then they're not going to do it. Uh, the second one that we've had good learnings on is all about our support. Um, and drivers tell us that they expect good support and we get it. We agree. During COVID, we shut down our, our phone support and that was a mistake. And now as a result, we've got 24-7 phone support so that when drivers have a few minutes between trips, they can call us and ask us a question and we can answer their questions. That seems pretty basic. And then the third thing is, is that we need to keep continuing to look at how we can improve around loyalty. Um, and so we have a loyalty program called Pro. Um, that's where you get the petrol discounts as a result. Um, but what they told us is walk walk the walk with your loyalty program. Show us that we actually mean something to you. And so now Diamond Drivers, which is the top tier, when they break through into that Diamond criteria, they get 500 bucks as a payment. Um, and talking to Mark, who had just got the payment yesterday, he said, that's a real moment for making me feel like I'm uh, I, I'm 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 part of this. So uh, that was a, a good 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 reinforcement that we've been able to uh, improve. What are the non-negotiables? Like, I think, don't take this away from me. Yeah, well, it's it's pretty simple. Don't tell me when I have to work. Don't tell me the exact amount that I'm going to be paid per hour. You're not my boss. Uh, yeah, no, you're not my boss. Don't don't tell me what I'm doing in my own car. Don't tell me that I can't work on other apps at any point in time. Forty eight percent of people tell us that they work on multiple platforms uh, in a given period. You know, this is this is the key underpinnings that if we were to w- move towards a world where we had to. Um, you know, move to shifts, move to set alley fares, then there is no um, way that we can allow drivers and delivery partners to be accepting the trips that they want. Um, There's no way that we can have them working on multiple platforms at a single point in time. And so very quickly, the benefits that people people tell us they love about it are eroded. And that's the the, the risk here that we um, as Uber and me personally feel a, a huge degree of responsibility to the drivers uh, and delivery partners of Australia to get it right. Have you spoken to the consumers? Is there anything that the consumers would like to see um, put into to be codified or put in legislation? It's an interesting question. I think the the consumers' number one way that they uh, interact with uh, Uber is through their experience getting into an Uber every day uh, or, or whenever they, they choose to use it. The drivers that they're meeting are telling them the same things as us. Don't don't lose the flexibility, uh, but consumers, Mark, as you know, uh, that they, they want low, lower price and they want more higher quality service, and so uh, we can't. We have to make sure that we are able to res- drive a regulatory outcome um, that is codified in in law that results in promising or good outcomes that enable us to retain the core underlying service quality that consumers, when they click on Uber rides or Uber Eats today are still going to get. Yeah, so in other words, you don't want it to be something that would be so heavily regulated that the cost of compliance is going to be added on to the cost of the ride and consumers 
wear it in the neck. In other words, consumers say, well, I can't afford that anymore or it's too expensive for me or I don't really, really see the value in it anymore. All of a sudden you, there's a whole lot of people who haven't got this extra work um, being the driver partners and or the delivery partners, then the consumers aren't getting anything. I can just see a, a whole industry falling apart, which is be a, a, an absolute, like that would be to me be diabolical because this keeps so many people afloat. It gives so many both consumers and your driver partners, it gives them so many options to earn an extra quid when they need to make extra money for whatever the purpose is. doesn't really matter what it is. It allows so many people to do other things that we actually engage in either learning or innovations that we need in this country. And, you know, in your normal sort of style of job, most people don't get that chance. They're cooked at the end of the day. They go to work at eight in the morning and they leave at five or six o'clock in the afternoon. They travel, they, they, they get make their way home on trains, public transport, everything else. And by the time they get home, they've got to make dinner and they're cooked. They're not, they're not doing any extra learning, they're doing extra study, they're not doing any extra, you know, side hustles. They're doing nothing. And as a nation, we just sit here doing nothing. And not to mention uh, the 50,000 restaurants that are using Uber to do their last mile delivery. So uh, yeah, totally. They, they rely on them. Yeah. And they're it's, backfilling uh, all the time too. Yeah. They're backfilling their, their revenues, the restaurants, they're backfilling their revenues and they're backfilling, um, they're keeping their kitchens alive if, if they have a kitchen, but they're keeping their, or, and or it could be a shop for that matter, but they're keeping their kitchens alive. They're going to 100% capacity because they're still going to pay rent. And if no one decides to come in for the day because it's raining or it's shit weather or it's cold or whatever, I can't take kids got to take the kids to school, couldn't get there. But if I know I can get something delivered, then I'll I'll get it, and that allows the owner of the business, the shop owner, the restaurant, cafe, what happens to me, whatever happens to be, to continue to be able to pay their costs. To me, the whole thing looks like it's a fundamental part of our economy today. It's a fundamental part of GDP. So we can't have over-regulation or regulation that doesn't work. So, you know, I would say, for me anyway, and Albo's not going to listen to me but <laughs> but he might, um, that you've got to consult the people who know what's going on and you most well, you've got to consult with the people who are going to be the most affected. Otherwise, you can kill this pretty easily. So... I think this needs to be, um, uh, for me, I mean, if I can help you in, in any way whatsoever, I mean, I would happily go with you if you wanted to and go to Canberra and talk and, and plead the case. I would, seriously, <laughs> because I believe in this sort of stuff across the board, not just for yeah. what you guys yeah. do, but across the board. We can't have too much meddling or if you're going to meddle, make sure you create something innovative that is brand new. And I'm optimistic that can occur um, and, and it will occur. Um, but uh, we've got a, a super interesting couple of months coming up here. Well, good luck. Thank you. Thanks very much, Don Taylor. Really enjoyed it, Mark. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. <laughs>